Hey, and welcome to another episode of American Student Radio. I'm your host, Sophia Mustin. I think I need to do like the same. Hello! Hello. Live um, from. Yeah, oh, awesome. Okay, great. Sounds like live from Indiana. Live from, um, live from Indiana, Indiana University, University in Bloomington. Bloomington. This is. This is hot. It's a hot mic. This is American, American Student Radio. Radio. That's pretty great. Is it like a sound or is it like. Fresh, crunching snow? Two hours of finger picking. Very good ASMR content. <laughs> Tragic, but also really beautiful. It's Little Five weekend here in Bloomington, and whether you love Little Five or hate it, I'm sure you'd agree that this weekend is chaotic, which got me thinking. Have you ever seen one of those memes that takes characters from a TV show and gives them moral alignments? Like Michael Scott, chaotic good, or Angela Martin, lawful evil? Sorry, my only pop culture references are from The Office. Anyway, I love these memes. I live for them. But once I decided to host this episode, I realized I didn't actually know anything about their origins. So here we are in the Radio TV building. It's a Thursday evening, and I'm here to talk to Emma Percival, someone who knows at least marginally more than I do about the moral alignments. Hello. Okay, so Dungeons & Dragons is a tabletop role-playing game. Through the game, you go on different adventures, complete quests, kind of develop your characters, and it's really just, it's a tool for collaborative storytelling. So moral alignments, they don't necessarily have a lot of impact on the mechanics of the game. It's more so just kind of a narrative tool for the player. In this situation, how would this character behave based on their alignment? Like, so at least for my character, I think I started off as chaotic good but she, was, uh, she just didn't end up being a very good character. And so I think there was one point where my character just kept like fainting for various reasons, but that was just because I wasn't playing to my alignment and I ended up changing her alignment to just chaotic neutral. So she's, she can do what she wants. Emma says that in Dungeons and Dragons, you choose your character's alignment. So this week we've asked our producers to do just that to go out, find a character, or situation, or place, and to tell us what its alignment would be. But producers, be warned. Each character that you make will inevitably have a little bit of yourself in there. It like makes sense that sometimes your, your alignments might be the same. No, Lawful Good isn't the most boring alignment, and Kat Spence can prove it. In this piece, she's going to explore why this unpopular alignment actually fits with one of the most exciting things in the world, winning the lottery. Yes, I did just Rickroll you in 2019, and no, I will not apologize for it. So yeah, that host lead was a lie. What I'm actually going to be doing during this piece is telling you why Rickrolling should be considered the lawful good of internet trolling. I've come to define lawful good in this context of internet pranks to mean following strict procedure and code with an outcome that is good. Rickrolling falls right into this definition. You see, it follows a strict procedure. A link is set up to make you interested and click on it. This link then leads you to the familiar sound of synth drums and the soothing crooning of Rick Astley. Or if we break it down to a more conceptual idea, you have to think one thing is going to happen when in reality never gonna give you up is happening. And I would like to put forth the hot take that this meme should be considered good. I mean, first of all, Never Gonna Give You Up is an absolute bop. Every time I hear this song, I know I'm in for a groovy time. And consider the lyrics of this 1987 classic. 
Rick is telling us he's never going to give us up, let us down, run around, or desert us. And honestly, who can say they've ever been let down by Rick Astley? Our next stop on the alignment chart brings us an audio movie trailer from Jack Bassett. So grab your popcorn and get comfy for an ASR flick. This summer, coming to a theater near you, witness Neutral Good, a superhero tale. A film just like everything you've already seen before. Join a magnitude of characters ranging from a man capable of shrinking down in size so small that he could climb into someone's butt. Or join heroes without any super ability at all, but who are simply skilled with the art of kicking. You heard that right, excessive kicking. See their shared common backstories of tragedy. Starring dead parents, dead parents, dead parents, and dead, I mean, sorry, Robert Downey Jr. See these heroes save the world by basically turning everything around them to rubble. Question whether these heroes are doing more bad than good. Judge costumes that happen to have too much leather and way too much spandex. View rich billionaire playboys transforming into heroes out of pure boredom. Join the youth heroes roaming the streets fighting crime without any parent supervision at all. And observe limited gender and sexual representation, which we aspire to change and improve upon. If you think you may have seen this story before, think again, because although you are probably right, you can still always enjoy a mindless escape into the void of fiction, where you can plant your falsehood of humanity on something at least. Yet another Hollywood take on heroism. See a woman love interest portrayed as weak and dependent on her male hero counterpart. Watch explosions, CGI, and everything else that's manly and pure badass. Grab some popcorn, sit down, and let your mind shut off. Because you're not just here for the storyline, you're here for some bangs, some booms, and some beatdowns. So give us your money and make the wallets of the billion dollar comic book film industry even fatter. Because a superhero movie truly is neutral good. In this next piece, we take a quick detour to Flavortown. Producer James Keyes is here to show us that Guy Fieri is much more than frosted tips and flame bowling shirts. That's all right here, right now, on Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Flavortown is a place for everyone, no matter what you look like, who you love, or how you eat. Flavortown's mayor is just as carefree and accepting. We're talking about Guy Fieri, of course. 
The combination of Ed Hardy shirt, backwards sunglasses, and halo of frosted tips, a stereotypical midlife crisis uniform, belies a heart of gold hidden in the Husky Fieri. Can you really think of anyone quite like him? Who else is riding across America in a cherry red hot rod on the search for our country's little known best bites? Who else would run a successful restaurant chain with an item known as donkey sauce on the menu? No one. When Guy Fieri comes to a restaurant, he does more than just eat impossibly large bites of everything on the menu. He gets to know the story of the employees and genuinely takes interest in their life. When he leaves, these mom and pop joints experience a boom in business that keeps them thriving long after Fieri sets off to find the next greatest diner, drive-in, or dive. Not only does he live the life that every eccentric foodie wishes they could, but he's way cooler than your average 51-year-old. After Florida repealed its ban on same-sex marriage, Fieri hosted a massive wedding to marry same-sex couples for free in honor of his late sister and lesbian, Morgan. Fieri is in the Barbecue Hall of Fame. His favorite word is namaste, he even has it tattooed on his arm. He runs a grand total of 63 restaurants and has an amazingly beautiful and loving family. He has huge food trucks that he deploys to chefs and communities in need so they can have hot dinner. Midlife crisis dad digs have never seemed so effortlessly wholesome. If it was anyone else, Fieri would be absolute chaos. But that guy, he's chaotically good. American Student Radio, this is James Keyes. And now for some lawful neutral. What's always in vanilla ice cream? Vanilla and cream, I guess. Has there ever been a thing more neutral? Cream without vanilla, I guess? In this piece, Emily Miles orders a cone. It's a Wednesday in April, 7 p.m., 70 degrees Fahrenheit. The world is so average. The only thing missing is a McDonald's vanilla ice cream cone. It's a dollar plus tax. In Indiana, that's seven cents. There's something about the combination of milk, sugar, cream, corn syrup, natural flavor, mono and diglycerides, cellulose gum, guar gum, carrageenan, and vitamin A palmitate that centers a person. It's the epitome of tradition, spinning the past into the future. It's grandma's wooden bucket ice milk, except industrially produced to satisfy en masse all of our nostalgic bones. It's like Fleetwood Mac, or Mac DeMarco, except it's not trying so hard. It's just a little swirl of frozen liquid. It melts into what it used to be and makes me do the same. With that little cone, I'm 5 and 13 and 22 all at once. And I'm with grandma and dad and girlfriends all at once. Hi. Um, can I have a nice cream cone, please? 
Anything else? That's all, thanks. Uh, to go, please. It is the neutral base, the caricature onto which memories and hopes project. Thank you. It's so plain, but so laden. Thank you. In this piece, I come head to head with my fear of a Bloomington critter to bring you chaotic neutral. It was November, the air growing frigid again, when I first spotted him rooting around in my yard. The next night, I couldn't take it anymore. I casually messaged my neighbors to assess whether they were uncomfortable or if it was just me. LOL, the lawn skunk is back. I say we keep him. He's good for the culture. He can help build organizational synergies between tenants. He serves as a physical representation for robust animal life throughout the world. And he increases IU's perception as an inclusive university. But my apartment has its own entrance. So while all my neighbors could steer well clear of the skunk, I had to skirt quietly past within 10 feet of him and inches of my life. Bloomington and a freshman year spent at Collins introduced me to skunks and their stench but never had one crawled so deeply into my psyche. I asked my mom if I should have my property manager set a humane trap to catch and release him. They did, to no avail. The skunk went away. I felt safe. He came back. Here's my boyfriend, Vinny, who lives in San Francisco. I do remember that he, she, the skunk was a uh, main point of our conversations for a long time. The main thing I remember was, uh, one, you were a little terrified, but also just so angry that he was uh, digging all these holes. Yeah, I remember you being just terrified and unhappy that he kept coming over and, and staying in your neighborhood. When Vinny visited, he got his first taste of my fear. We walked up the steps and walked around the house, and I don't remember which of us saw it first, but I just remember the pure terror that existed between us as we looked down and saw the skunky boy. And he, he would sort of duck his head and then he would lift his head up. He would duck his head and lift his head up. And I think he would only hear when we like made footsteps when we stopped, he would just keep just like doing his little ducking and uh, just like the cutest skunk. Of course, he was a lot cuter once we were inside and looking through the window. Um, he was less cute when we were trying to like edge in the doorway full of terror. That's not a passage to your house you would want to take on your phone or distracted. Um, Cause I would hate to just walk up on him there'd be no escape. And here's my friend Emily, from whom you also heard earlier in the show. I remember it being really cold. I think we were at Collins at the Cheshire Cafe, and we walked back to your house, and the idea was we were going to walk to your house, you were going to drive me home because it was cold, dark. Yeah, it was late. Nasty. I didn't want to walk. We got there, and there was a little creature digging vigorously in the side yard of your house, and we just stood there on the sidewalk, watching it. You were like, oh, that's the skunk. The skunk. We were really afraid to go, like, even walk up to your house, let alone, like, get to your car, which was, like, past the house a little bit. I just remember they're standing there for, like, a really long time and debating, like, what we would do and, like, to what extent the fear was reasonable. And at the end, I was just like, don't get sprayed by a skunk. You ran really fast and the skunk didn't do anything. And then I walked home and everything was fine. I was just glad that you didn't get sprayed. 
I realized the skunk was closing in on the way I lived my life. I was so anxious about being sprayed that I wouldn't move freely into and out of my apartment after dark. Something had to change. So I educated myself. And where better to do that than on YouTube? Skunks are not aggressive and they only spray in self-defense. They will always warn before spraying. They will turn their back to the target, hiss and stamp their feet. If the animal does not move, they will spray them. Along with the smell, skunks have evolved warning coloration. That obvious white stripe down their back is a signal to other animals to stay away. Typically, they unleash that dreaded spray as a last resort. Yeah, I think they're pretty gentle creatures as much as we give them, you know, a real bad rap. In the same way that, like, we should be afraid of spiders because they can get us, like, we should be afraid of skunks because they can get us. The most important element is, like, respect because they're powerful beings in the world and, like, it's best not to mess with them. I just wish that we could coexist, really? I guess that's the big, that's the big wish. At the end of the day, skunks are far more decent than humans. Chances are you can find a skunk in your neck of the woods, using his God-given gifts to maintain a place in the food chain. Special thanks to Avocado the Skunk and to my favorite dogs Sadie and Jadu for taking their quest to help me with research for this piece to the front lines. Your sacrifices will not be forgotten. Everyone knows that crosswalk on 10th Street between Wells Library and Spia, that horrible taste of hell. In this next piece, Sheila Ragavandran talks to some people about how it's so awful, but also lawful. The clock bell starts singing. It's 5.15, and most of campus comes alive. Students spill out of class and onto sidewalks. There are sounds of laughter and excitement. But on 10th Street, there's no laughter or excitement. It sucks. Surprise! no one's gotten hit yet. I think it's a little dangerous. <laughs> They're talking about the one thing on campus that really proves the devil is real. It's the crosswalk between Wells Library and Spia. It's like one of the worst crosswalks on campus. Who likes it? Nobody. <laughs> it's just like annoying to wait for cars to pass. I mean, it costs a lot of traffic for the car. Welcome week, I remember when I first got here, my mom was cursing people out. because She was like completely new to this type of crosswalk, I guess. I'm usually just stuck in traffic. But as evil as the crosswalk is, it's also super legal for everyone to walk on it. When I'm on the bus, it's really annoying, but also it's nice as a pedestrian because... I don't feel worried about having to stop for cars because I know they're going to stop for me, I guess. You can't really fault the students. They're supposed to cross and then you put like a major road through campus right there. I think I think it was kind of poor planning. A couple people had some ideas for what would make the street work better. I think it would be better if there was like 30 seconds for people to walk and then 30 seconds for the cars to go because I think that it's it, it does get backed up really yeah. obnoxiously. It's just build a bridge. <laughs> Simple solution. But for now, all we can do is look both ways. For American Student Radio, I'm Sheila Raghavendran. Evil takes many forms. A neutral kind of evil in particular plays a large role in perpetuating homophobia in America. Join Max Sandifer as he reimagines Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail in his piece, Letter from the Rowan County Clerk Office. While confined here in the Rowan County Clerk Office, I came across you. You criticized me, calling my way of life sinful and militant. Seldom do I pause to answer criticisms of my life and way of life. I sought to answer all the criticisms that came across my mind. I would have little time to do anything else or any constructive work. But since you feel that you are a woman of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, 
I want to try and answer your criticisms and what I hope will be a patient and reasonable terms. I think I should indicate why I'm here in this simple clerk's office, since you have been influenced by the view which argues that radical gays are coming in. I have the honor of marrying my partner, a man who I hold near and dear in my heart, and hope to be recognized by this name of Kentucky as husband and husband. But more basically, I am stuck in this county clerk office because injustice is here. Just as George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door, and just as Strom Thurmond stood for 24 hours and 18 minutes among his peers in Congress, you stand here thwarting progress. I cannot sit idly at home and not be concerned about what happens in this courthouse. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow homophobic idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. You deplore the demonstrations taking place across the U.S., but your statement, I'm sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions brought out these demonstrations. I'm sure that none of you would want to rest content with a superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with the effects and does not grapple with the underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in the United States, but it is even more unfortunate that this city's heteronormative power structure left the gay community with no alternative. If any nonviolent campaign, there are four steps. A collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. We have gone through all these steps in the U.S. There can be no gainsaying the fact that bigoted injustice engulfs this country. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. LGBT plus individuals have experienced grossly unjust treatment in courts when trying to adopt children. There have been more hate crimes against LGBT plus individuals in the United States than any other minority group. These are hard, brutal facts of the case. Not even on the basis of these conditions, my partner and I simply sought to obtain a marriage license, a blessing allowed to us on June 26, 2015, due to a simple Supreme Court ruling of Obergefell v. Hodges, but the latter consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of discrimination. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every LGBT individual with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited since the dawn of America for our constitutional and God-given rights. The countries of Europe are moving with jet-like speed towards gaining societal equality, but we still creep at a horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee without being called a faggot or a stare. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of discrimination to say wait, but when you have seen the vicious mobs degrade your brothers and sisters and friends and family at will and whim, when you see the vast majority of your 14 million LGBT plus brothers smothering in an airtight cage of second-class citizenry in the midst of an affluent society, when you find yourself tongue-twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why the other kids don't want to play with her and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that it's because her father is gay and see the ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form her mental little sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards her own father's sexuality. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do straight people treat gay people so mean? 
when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over, and men and women are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, miss, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a great deal of anxiety over our demand to simply obtain the certificate guaranteed to us by law to show our love to one another. This is not a legitimate concern. Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The yearning for freedom eventually manifests itself, and that is what has happened to the LGBT plus community. Something within himself has reminded him or her of the birthright of freedom, and something without that has reminded him or her that it can be gained. If one recognizes this vital urge that has engulfed the LGBT plus community, one should see readily why public demonstrations are taking place and Supreme Court decisions are being made. I had hoped that the moderate would see this need. Perhaps I was too optimistic. Perhaps I expected too much. I suppose I should have realized that the few members of the oppressor can understand the deep groans and passionate yearnings of the oppressed, and still fewer have the vision that see that injustice must be rooted out by strong and persistent determined action. Unlike so many of their moderate brothers and sisters, many have recognized the urgency of the moment and sensed the need for powerful action antidotes to combat the disease of discrimination. Let me take note of my other major disappointment. I've been so greatly disappointed with the church and its leadership. Of course, there are some notable exceptions. I'm not unmindful of the fact that each of you have taken some significant stance on this issue and helped out the community in ways unimaginable. But despite these notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. The churches have shunned us and reinforced others' hatred and bigotry with consistency. Ultimately, a great deal lies on religious leaders teaching love and acceptance rather than be clouded by vitriol and hate. I hope our love finds you strong in the faith, and I hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me and you to talk, not as a gay activist or a radical, but as a neighbor and member of your local community. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. According to Dungeons & Dragons lore, demons are the epitome of chaotic evil, and all too often, our human anxieties and insecurities haunt us like demons from our past. In this piece, Pilar Brynjarski wonders who is really making someone chaotic evil. Hi, it's me, your demon. You didn't choose me. But hell if I chose you. We're assigned. Or we just happened. We're soul mates. If you will. Will you? I bet you won't. I know exactly what else you won't do, too. You won't... Let yourself be happy. You say you want to be happy. But I think we know better, huh? Remember how close we got when you were little? I'm here just to let you know that things will always be that way. Take some comfort in knowing that life will always 
have to suck a little. Oh, sorry. Yeah. You know how to be different. You've got all the perspective you need. I'll just be here, for a backup. You might not know when you need me. But you'll always come back. American Student Radio is a student-run podcast at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Thanks to the Media School for support and to Lunomatic for the timeless theme music. Other music in this episode comes from a number of sources, but mostly Blue Dot Sessions. We love you, Blue Dot Sessions. You can follow ASR on Twitter and Instagram at ASR Voice. And you can find us on Facebook. Have a thought? Hit us up on social or email us at americanstudentradio at gmail.com. Bye now.